0: And the rest of you get to turn with me to Romans chapter 14 and 15 as we come to this fourth message in a series on understanding how to cope with differences of opinion in the body of Christ concerning what's right and wrong. A couple of key words there, and one of them is opinion. We're not talking about absolutes that are abundantly clear, but those areas that uh, Christians tend to differ over for which there is no solid biblical foundation. And uh, we're going to be talking about that again this morning. Now last week, I told you I was going to give you fish. You remember? If you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. But if you teach him how to fish... You can feed him for a lifetime. Last week I gave you fish. We talked about specific instances that we know that Christians differ over. But it's not possible to design a sermon that covers all the bases. Nor is it fair to make you dependent on the pastor to give the final word. You need to be dependent on God by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. So this morning I want to give you some principles that you can use yourselves in analyzing anything and assessing it. Is it it something that fits in the realm of opinion? Is there a biblical message surrounding this particular topic? Is it a moral absolute? Should I give latitude to my brothers and sisters or should I prayerfully seek to correct them? depending on how an issue comes out. I want to show you in the Bible how to make those determinations. Just want to look at verse 23 of chapter 14 for a moment. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Here is the test, ultimately, of whether you can do something or not. Do you have confidence before God? <clears throat> the Bible says whatever is not of faith is sin. Now, in this case, is talking about the person who's eating. Remember, Paul, in his day, was addressing three things that were troubling the Roman Christians. The Gentiles and the Jewish believers were struggling over the issues of meat that had been sacrificed to idols and then sold in the marketplace for food wine that had been sacrificed, at least poured out some of it to idols and then sold in the marketplace, and over whether to keep certain holy days or Sabbath days or the Sabbath day as opposed to to just having an attitude that every day was the Lord's day and all were on the same uh, level field. Those were the issues of Paul's day. And Paul said if a man cannot eat meat with a clear conscience he should not eat it because uh, it will condemn him he needs to have a clear conscience before god and we can take from this verse a principle that applies to us in any situation is this something we can do with a clear conscience whatever is not of faith is sin and so if my conscience is clear then i'm free and if it's not I need to hold back until God teaches me. And I want to say that there is growth in the Christian life. There is development along the way. We need to examine our own traditions. We need to examine our own teaching. I have changed a great deal from my childhood upbringing. There are areas where my opinions of things have changed. I can remember a time, quite a long time ago, probably 30 or more years ago, that I felt that a church that didn't have a Sunday night service was a liberal church on the way to godlessness, headed out the door. They were going to become unspiritual and drift away from God because they didn't have a Sunday night service. You had to have a Sunday night service to be a spiritual church. Well... We don't have a Sunday night service. And I don't feel guilty about it. Because I came to understand the history and the background of that whole thing. And and my understanding has changed and matured. And I hope that you can grow up in Christ as we move along and evaluate our own traditions. Is what I'm holding here so precious? Is it? a biblical requirement or is an opinion a tradition that i've been given that i need to reevaluate well how do we do that if you have your outline i encourage you to look at it if you didn't get one maybe we could help distribute the few remaining if you didn't get one you, know, you could raise your hand even if you're not in a small group you will benefit from having a copy of this so that you can uh, can consult it in the future The first question that we want to ask concerning anything is, is it a matter that is specifically mentioned in the Scripture? Is it something that we can go to the Bible and find a verse on? That helps immensely. Can I find this thing in the Bible? If you can't find any mention of it anywhere in the Bible, It is most likely a matter of opinion, not a matter of biblical direction. Now, I want to give you some examples to help clarify what we mean by that, because you may not be able to find the word, but you can find the concept. For example, white lie. Does everyone know what a white lie is? As opposed to a black one or a gray one, you know? When I was growing up, my father, who was a man of great integrity, by the way, nonetheless told what he called, uh, occasionally he told what he called a white lie. A white lie is when you're in this situation. Aunt Susie has just baked an apple pie, and she has served it for dessert. And it is so tart, it makes your lips turn flip-flops, and your eyes water. And she says to you, I worked all morning making this homemade apple pie. How do you like it? And my father, being a man of great social sensitivity, uh, said in that case, it's okay to tell a white lie (laughs) and say, "I, I really like your pie. Now, you're not going to find white lie in the Bible. You're only going to find lies in the bible (laughs) you're only going to find verses that deal with lying and you're not going to find a verse that tells you it's okay to tell a white lie as opposed to a black one or a gray one or whatever other color or shade you want to give it now i'm not going to give you any help on that particular problem with aunt susie you and god are going to have to sort out how you respond to the question but um The point of the matter is, if you look up white lie in Scripture, you're not going to find that there. You're going to have to go to God and come up with solutions to those socially awkward situations and and deal with them as the Lord leads you. How about horoscope? Is it okay for Christians to read their horoscope? Well, you won't find horoscope in the Bible. I know because I looked. And I searched electronically in my computer Bible. And, uh, it doesn't occur in several versions. However, those who look to the stars for guidance does occur. And the word astrology occurs. In fact, Deuteronomy 4.19 says, do not look to the stars. And the heavenly bodies for your guidance. For the Lord your God is the one who will guide you and direct you. And it and it says that those people who look to the stars, in fact, Isaiah 47:13, in a bit of sar, uh, sarcastic irony, says, "All right, go to the astrologers if you want to, and 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 get their guidance from the heavenly bodies." In other words, you're not listening to God, so go try whatever else you want to try. But the Scripture is very plain in teaching us that God is the one who gives us guidance. And we are not to look to other means and other sources. So even though you won't find horoscope in the Bible, you will find astrology or you will find the concept of looking to the heavenly bodies to get direction. And for a believer, we should know better than that. You also won't find a verse in the Bible that tells you whether or not you can attend a seance. The word seance does not occur anywhere in the Scripture. But if you look up mediums and spiritists and those who consult the dead, you will find verses in the Bible that deal with those topics. And the Scripture says, any one of my people in the Old Testament who goes to a spiritist or a medium, will be cut off from my people. So God's attitude about that kind of thing is very plain. And as you begin to search the scriptures, you learn, for example, that no one can talk to the dead. The dead die, and they either go to heaven, or they go to hell. But you can't connect with them anymore. You say, well, all right, who are they talking to? Well, they're talking to familiar spirits they're talking to demons that have associated themselves with those people's lives and even though they seem to know things about the individual and may even mimic their voice the Bible tells us they're demonic spirits and we are prohibited from having any contact with them so you can find the concept in the scripture what if you want to find out if Texas Hold'em is in the Bible? Can I, can I play Texas Hold'em? Well, you won't find Texas Hold'em in the Bible. So let's use our, uh, our principle here and expand it. How about cards? If I can't find the card game, can I find a verse in the Bible that talks to me about playing cards? Well, no, we're out of luck again. There aren't any verses that talk about playing cards. Okay, Um, when people play cards, often they gamble. Maybe there's a verse in the Bible that talks to me about gambling. And so you look and you find, of all things, there's not a Bible verse that talks about gambling. So there's no verses on Texas Hold'em, there's no verses on cards, and there's no verses on gambling. Now what do I do? Well, you ask God. (laughs) Whatever's not of faith is sin. You find out from God what you should do because there's not a verse in Scripture that addresses it. It's truly a matter of opinion between you and the Lord. And as such, it becomes an issue that we cannot judge each other about. Now, I will be honest with you. If I find out that you're attending seances, as your pastor, I'm going to be on your doorstep. We need to have a talk. Because you're in spiritual trouble. And I can support that in Scripture and explain to you why you don't need to be involved in that. But if I find out that you're playing Texas Hold'em with your friends... (laughs) in your basement or your den or your living room or whatever I don't have anything to say about that that's between you and God because that's a matter that the scripture does not address specifically and so we need to ask ourselves the first question is this something that there's a verse in scripture that clearly addresses if not it's a matter of opinion if so Then we need to ask the question, letter B, if it's mentioned by name in the Bible, are you sure that the contemporary word and the original biblical word have the same meaning and occur in the same context? Now, I tried to find an example of this in the New American Standard Bible and the New International Version, and I couldn't. And I asked various people, and I asked my small group, and they couldn't help me. So, maybe there isn't an example in the the modern translations of the Scripture. One I can clearly think of in the King James Version that illustrates my point is 1 Peter 3, where it says, You wives, speaking of women married to unbelieving husbands, you wives, seek to win your husbands without a word by the conversation of your life. And you think, huh, okay, without a word, but I'm supposed to do it by conversation. And someone may read that and say, well, I don't know what the first part means, but I want to talk to him. So I'm supposed to, with my conversation, just kind of wear him down until I get him to come to Jesus. You know, yap, yap, yap. But conversation 450 years ago meant your lifestyle didn't have anything to do with your speech. It meant your lifestyle. Today, the word conversation means talking back and forth. But when the King James Version was translated, it meant the way you live. And what Peter is actually saying is, you wives who are married to unbelievers, seek to win your husbands without a word by the way you live in your home before them. Rely on the Holy Spirit to do the talking while you do the acting so that they will come under an appealing desire to know Jesus Christ. And so there's a case where the words have changed. So number one, can I find a verse in the Bible that addresses my issue? Number two, Am I sure that the words mean the same thing? If they do, number three, if it's mentioned by name and you have correctly understood both its meaning and its context, then the question is, does the Bible clearly command it or prohibit it? For example, Proverbs 11, 15, it says, he who is a guarantor for a stranger will surely see. Suffer for it. Another proverb says, Don't co-sign for a borrower, or you'll be a foolish person. Alright, what is it saying to us there? Is it it a clear command? Or or those who co-sign for a borrower will, will be a fool? Something to that effect. Is it a clear command or a clear prohibition? No, it's giving you wise counsel. It's giving you some good advice. It's saying, don't be a cosigner unless you want to lose your money and and end up looking like a fool. Now, there's all kinds of reasons not to cosign for someone. For one thing, any banker will tell you. I asked Jan to confirm this in the 8 o'clock service, and she readily did. Any banker will tell you, if you need a cosigner... It's because you're not a good risk. You're likely to default. The bank wants someone to back you up because you're not a good risk. And if you co-sign for someone who's not a good risk, duh, you're putting your neck on the noose where the bank's not willing to go. That's not necessarily very smart. On the other hand, it could be a family member or a dear friend and and, and you know their circumstances and you understand the situation and, and you feel that they deserve an opportunity you're willing to take that risk. You need to be willing to take the risk because you may have to pay the debt. There's a good chance they will fail. Maybe through no intention of their own, but they'll just fail and you may have to pick up the pieces and Pay the loan. I remember my dad talking about he did that one time when he was a young man. He co-signed for a friend that uh, was in trouble, and he just thought for sure this person was going to take care of the problem. And unfortunately, they defaulted, and he ended up, I think it was a car loan, and he ended up having to pay for the car that the other person left the state with and went to another place enjoying the car that my dad ended up paying for over time, and he learned a valuable lesson. He also lost a friend, and that brings us to another good reason why it's not a good idea to co-sign for a borrower, because chances are you're going to get into a dispute over money eventually, and friendships are lost over money. At best, as much as we try to uh, say we're dead to self, uh, there is nothing that will raise the ugly head of self faster than being on the short stick concerning money. And Proverbs is full of examples of people who will lend money or co-sign for a borrower and then things go south and the friendship is destroyed. Uh, because we have a hard time walking away from it. There's actually a better way in the Old Testament if you want to study the Old Testament principles of borrowing and lending. First of all, you shouldn't co-sign unless you're prepared to pay for it. And secondly, if it's someone that you love and care about and it means that much to you, you ought to just give them the money yourself. And you ought to do so without interest. And you ought to let them pay you back whenever they can, without interest. Because... That's how you treat your family. Now, if you work out other arrangements, it's not sin to work out another arrangement, but you also have to be prepared in your heart when you write the check or hand the cash out to say goodbye to it and never allow that to become an issue in your friendship because if the wrinkle occurs, you may end up losing a friend or worse, a family member over the deal. So what does the Bible say here? Is there a clear commandment prohibiting it, or a clear commandment uh, ordering it? No, there isn't. But there's a lot of wisdom given in the Scripture. And when it's all said and done, you have to get before God and make a decision and be prepared to accept the consequences. And the Bible gives a lot of direction concerning possible outcomes. So you have to ask the question, Okay, I found it in the Bible. It's clearly used in the proper context. But is it commanded or prohibited or left to my discretion after the Bible gives me wisdom? Letter D. Is it a behavior that is clearly prohibited or if it's a behavior that is clearly prohibited or commanded, does it pass the test of transcendent, universal, cross-cultural truth? Or is it limited to a given period of Bible history or a specific contextual location or event? Boy, that's a mouthful. But let me explain it by way of an illustration. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for just a moment? 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 5 and 6. 1 Corinthians 11. Verses 5 and 6. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Okay, I've surveyed the room. And I don't see any women with hair coverings. So why aren't you all bald? Do not know what it says? If you're not willing to cover your head, get cut all the hair off. What is the scripture saying? You've got to go back to the Corinthian problem to understand it, and there are several things that are happening in the context of Corinthians. One thing is that it was the practice of pagan rituals in in the in the uh pagan temples that they practiced what they called sacred prostitution. It's a little hard to say those two words in the same breath it's kind of like a oxymoron, but but they practiced what they called sacred prostitution, where they kind of worshipped the fertility gods and goddesses, usually goddesses, and they did so by becoming available for, for sexual use at the temples, and part of the initiation of that period of time, when they would serve in that manner, they would shave their head as the initiation of their dedication so when you encountered a woman with a shaved head in Corinth you knew that she is or had recently been a temple prostitute that was one of the issues that was going on second thing is that many uh, uh, biblical scholars that have investigated the period feel it was happening in Corinth was that because of some of the fertility rites and whatever that some of the religions had taken on strong uh, female dominance and leadership, and that that was moving into the church in terms of a female superiority. And that kind of like the flip of of the of the male superiority, it was the female that was kind of at the top of the spiritual food chain, so to speak, in terms of power. And it appears that Paul was trying to bring correction to that in the context. Of what befit women of godliness. And basically what he's saying here is don't look like a prostitute. Don't come to church looking like a prostitute. Alright, if you want to translate that into the modern culture, it still applies. Don't come to church looking like a prostitute. You can apply that today. Prostitutes have a certain look about them. Don't come looking that way. Don't dress in a manner, don't present yourself in a way that communicates sexual immorality, prowess, and predominance. And so for them, cover your head. That was the tradition. And Paul is addressing the church at Corinth regarding that tradition. But you know what? Every one of you ladies got up this morning And without even thinking of this scripture, you got ready for church today kind of knowing that this doesn't apply to you. Literally, it doesn't apply to you in this manner. And so, we understand in our culture there are different signs. Now, there are people who still take this quite literally. And they wear a head covering. And you can see these women in different parts of the country that are part of these groups that some of them dress all in black and they put their hair up and they put on their little white bonnet and they cover their head because they feel like they're being obedient to the Scripture. Do you think, and and, and I'm I'm not trying to belittle anyone here, but I'm asking an honest question. Do you think that draws people to Christ Or drives them away. My suspicion is that most people would not want to be a part of a group that was weird like that. Seriously. I'm not disrespecting their conviction, but I don't think they're going to reach very many people with the message of Jesus Christ. Because most people are going to look at them and say, that's really strange. Those people are odd. I don't know what this Christianity stuff is, but I don't want to be like they are. And I think we have to ask ourselves that question because we can take that same principle and and move it into our arena of what we think and don't think and what what message are we sending that may not be a part of the gospel but may simply be a part of our subculture. So we have to ask the question, is what the Bible is saying transcendent of culture? That means it applies in all times and places. Or is it specific to a locale and a given time? Another passage, if you'd like to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, just go over a couple of verses, a couple of pages. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 9. Paul says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Now, I'm surveying for braided hair. Actually, I don't see any braided hair. How about gold? Anybody here, any ladies wearing gold? Anything gold? Earrings, rings, necklace? Okay. How about pearls? We'll even count fake pearls, because they're designed to look like real pearls. Do you have fake pearls? <laughs> okay. Uh, how about costly garments? Well, boy, we could spend a long time on that one, couldn't we? Did you get it at the $1. $0.97 cent penny sale or did did you buy it uh you know from uh one of the the big name stores? What are you wearing? How does it fit? How do you put all that together? Um I have in my pocket a cross pin. It um it happens to be made out of gold and uh actually as far as pens goes, I suppose it's fairly expensive. I, I remember um, very early in my ministry, I've always liked nice things. Some people are born with silver spoons in their mouth. I think mine was gold. And um, I've always liked nice things. And uh, yeah, I couldn't always afford them. But it was kind of interesting. Along the way, one time I was cleaning out the church bus, and um, I found a cross pin you know the slender little gold cross pin was really cool and i did my very best there you go that's just like that one and i did my best to find its owner it stayed in the church office for like a month and uh, we said anybody lose a pen, come claim this pen. no one claimed it so i ended up with a cross pin and i thought that's really cool i have a cross pin so um not long after that we moved to franklin to start a church and uh one of the young men in the church was working as a server at shoney's restaurant and he saw that i had a cross pen and he says i found the matching pencil on a table one day and it's been sitting up at the counter for a couple months and no one has claimed it it's rightfully mine would you like a pencil to match your pen and i said wow that would be really cool so then I got a cross pencil to go with my pen. So now I have a pen and a pencil that match. And I probably put them in my pocket. Maybe that's the bad adjective. I don't know. Or adverb. But I put them in my pocket. And you don't just use cross pens and pencils. You wear them. Don't you? So I was wearing my cross pen and pencil in my pocket. Would you believe? that that caused the wife of our treasurer to stumble badly. She took issue with me. I mean, this turned into such a blowout that they left the church. She took issue with me because I was being proud and flamboyant and dressing in an expensive, extravagant style, and she mentioned two reasons. I had a cross-pen pencil set, and I had electric windows in my car. I kid you not, they left the church over this eventually, but not before they caused a great deal of, of stink. And in fact, they invited me to their home for dinner when this argument was heating up, because they wanted to confront me on my worldliness, and actually, maybe they were picking up something. I mean, I don't know, when, you know your, your enemies and your critics are often your best friends, and anytime you get criticized, you need to get before God and ask the questions. You know Is there something that I'm sending out that's true of me? But they invited me over for dinner, and in the course of dinner, they wanted to address the issue of my pens and my electric windows. And in the course of the conversation, I quote, these were the words that came out of their mouth. We pay you to be holy. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> I couldn't do that right there at the table, but that's, that's... We pay you to be holy. And I thought, whoa. Because what was really bizarre is this couple, he had just passed his CPA exam. He was moving up in one of the big eight firms, former Navy fighter pilot. And this couple had one of the nicest homes in their neighborhood, and they were constantly spending more money to upscale their house. They had one of the nicest homes in the church. But somehow I had become a stumbling block to them. The issues that Paul is addressing concerning women in Timothy, as we translate them into today, are not the same. There is a similarity of principle. And the similarity of principle is, don't dress in a gaudy, fashion statement way that draws attention to yourself and particularly to your sexuality. Dress in such a way that brings glory to God. Dress in such a way that honors the Lord and doesn't make you stand out. I mean, if someone came into this church on a Sunday morning and wore a gown like some of the movie stars wear to their big festivals that cost $40,000 for one gown to be worn one time, you know, we might have to have a conversation. (laughs) We might I think I could find scriptural basis to say you really need to rethink that. But when it comes to the literal transposition of these commandments, we have to ask ourselves, is this for a time in a culture? And how does the principle fit? And whether or not I have a gold cross pin or not is not a gauge of my spirituality? I thought it was particularly humorous in the fact that both of them were found, <laughs> one on a bus, one left at a table, never claimed, and I came by them free. I thought God was being gracious to me in, in providing something, and someone else took it as a means of offense. It's amazing. But what? how does it actually literally apply? Several people asked me about the question of modesty last week, by the way, and I just want to make a, a Parting statement here before we move on. Uh, The feeling was that perhaps I left this too open from a cultural standpoint by saying that anything that the culture approves is okay. The word modest in the Greek actually means dress with a sense of shame. Dress with a sense of shame. Now, I don't think God is telling you to be ashamed of your dress or of yourself. That's, That's not the point. The point is that sense of shame goes to the sexual component of our being. And what the scripture is admonishing us is don't dress in a way that calls attention to your sexuality. Men or women. That calls attention to you as a sexual being. You're still a male or a female. You're still a man or a woman. And you're going to dress in an appropriate way For your gender. But don't dress in a way that is calculated to highlight your sexuality. Dress in a way that highlights your character. That befits a person of godliness that you and Jesus are pleased with. Which certainly does does not mean that anything that goes on out there in the culture is appropriate in the church. uh, Among believers. I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the family. There's a lot of stuff out there that's not appropriate. But I think you and Jesus can figure it out. And the other thing is that I tried to leave us with last week. We've got to allow room for growth. Baby Christians are baby Christians. You know, I don't want to cause someone to stumble over Jesus because I'm fussing at them about their dress. I want to let the Holy Spirit work in their life until he deals with them and they grow up in Christ. God is faithful to teach us, and we can count on that. So is the thing that we're questioning, is it something that is culturally embedded, or does it transcend culture for all time? Boy, there's a lot I could go on there, and I'm not going to be able to. Letter E. Am I applying specific regulations when only basic principles or guidelines are given by Scripture? Some biblical principles that appear contradictory actually express two ends of a continuum that need to be held in balance. What do I mean by that? Let me give an example. Actually, I'm going to give two. Let me pick one. One example that I would like to pick is the example of saving And planning for the future versus giving everything away today. Proverbs 6 says, go to the ant. Consider his ways. Look how he stores up in harvest time and in in the summertime and plans and prepares. Uh, Examine those things and count and and look at them. And then, um, a little later in the same Proverbs, verse 10 it says a little sleep and a little slumber and your poverty will suddenly come upon you. In other words, if you're lazy and you don't take initiative and and go to work, you're eventually going to end up in poverty. Suppose we were to ask the question, should a Christian have a savings account, have a retirement account, own health insurance and property insurance and those kinds of things. Should a Christian have these things? Or should a Christian only take what they need to live today, give away the rest, give it to the poor, give it to kingdom advancement, definitely don't have a savings account, definitely don't have a retirement account, don't waste your money on insurance, Trust God with your life and just live for today. That's the question. Which side of this coin should we come down on? If we were to choose debating teams and have a debate over this issue, I can honestly tell you that I could pick either side and convincingly defend it biblically. I'd have a little better, a little easier time with the spend it all, give it away, than I would with the save it all. But I could convincingly defend either point biblically. After all, Jesus himself said, in the very context of material possessions, do not take any thought for tomorrow. If you cut enough trouble today, do not lay up for yourselves on earth Treasures where moth and rust corrupt and thieves can steal. But invest your treasures in heaven where they're untouchable. Your heavenly Father knows that you have need of food and clothing. And so trust Him to provide it. And give no thought for tomorrow. But you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And God will provide for you all these other things. Two ends... Two extremes on a subject, which we could defend biblically in either case. Where should you stand? Exactly where God tells you to stand. That's where you should stand. You need to seek God in prayer and find out what he wants you to do. And that's what you need to do. And we need to be careful that we don't judge one another in this matter. Because you alone have to stand before God and answer for your decision. And I I should add there, you need to make sure you're looking to God. Because some people say they're looking to God, and really they're counting on everybody else to pick up the slack. But if you're looking to God in either case and giving him the glory and doing what the Lord directs you to do, we have nothing to say about it. That's the matter between you and God. There is no biblical mandate that will land you anywhere on that continuum. There's a lot of room for different positions. Another one is, fathers, you train up your children. Fathers, don't provoke them to anger, but discipline them in the Lord. Train them up in the Lord. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he grows older, he'll not depart from it. Fathers, you're the head of your household. You're the priest of your family. You're charged with teaching your children. The only biblical way you can do that properly is to homeschool them. Your wife cannot work outside the home. She must stay home and follow your directions on how to teach your children. Homeschooling is the only way to raise your kids. Or... You can't possibly be an expert in every field, but you've got to keep your kids out of that godless public environment. So, you need to put your kids in Christian school because in the early days of the church in the New Testament, you could hire tutors to train your children that believed and held your philosophy. So, you need to have your children in Christian school. That's the only acceptable way to raise them. Or... We're called to be salt and light in this earth. And if we don't have our children involved in the public school system, for which we pay taxes and already pay for that education, and if we don't get involved ourselves, who's going to be the salt and light in the public school system? We need to to salt that system with Christian teachers and Christian principals, and we need to have our kids bringing the message of Christ and our values Into that environment, we need to get involved in the parent-teacher organizations. We need to be going on the field trips with the kids. We need to be showing them Jesus Christ by example. What's right? It's a matter between you and God. There is no way you can take any of those positions and make a biblical case out of it. You can make a biblical case, people do it all the time, but not a legitimate one. Here's the only thing that I can prove to you from the scripture, from what I've just said. Mom and Dad, you're responsible before God for your children. I'm not responsible for them. You're responsible for them. Get on your face and ask God what he wants you to do. And do what he tells you. And pray for them all along the way. Because there aren't any guarantees. There aren't any guarantees. Of our boys, uh, Stephen was homeschooled, Christian schooled, and public schooled. And I think the greatest damage came from a Christian school. I think he was hurt more by a Christian school than than the other two because of the abuse that he suffered at the hands of unprincipled people. It was a sad thing and uh, grieves me. I mean, if we were the kind of people that sued, (laughs) we could probably sue over the way he was treated in a Christian school. But I can tell you, (laughs) all three of them had an impact. And along the way, you've got to be asking God, give me wisdom, give me direction, show me the way, Lord. I need to know what to do. Parents are responsible for their kids. And a church and a pastor and other people in the congregation cannot tell you God's will in this area. There is not a biblical verse that clears it up. It's something that you have to settle between you and God. So where do you fit on those continuums? When the Bible seems to be giving uh, messages that that you struggle with, they're there for a reason, and wisdom often lies in the balance. Let the one who's who's going to be first among you go last. Consider others more important than yourselves. But what about in a crisis? Should leaders step forward and lead? Should they, should they take responsibility and step forward and lead? You bet. The most loving, selfless thing I can do in a crisis is to provide leadership. When people don't know what to do, someone needs to give direction. And that's the time to step up to the plate and give direction. Is that violating the passages of being humble and submissive and and going last and, and preferring others above yourself? It may be the very epitome of doing that. To step to the front and say, follow me, I know how to get out of here. And so when the Bible presents us with Those issues, we need to ask God in this moment, in this time, in this place, where do you want me to stand and take your guidance accordingly? Let me just close with some final thoughts. Boy, I could say so much on this and I just can't fit it all in. But fear. Probably one of the biggest tests that you can ask yourself is, is my rule motivated by fear? fear can i begin my defense of my position or do i begin my defense of my position by saying well i'm afraid that or i'm concerned that or if we go here the next thing you know we'll be there those very statements belie an underlying fear that we're afraid that if we take this step Even though the edge of the cliff is way out yonder, the next thing you know, we're going to be falling off of it. When I first came into the Christian Missionary Alliance many years ago, they have continued to modify our um, statements on what social uh, kinds of things we prohibit. And uh, I'm I'm delighted to hear, I, I really... I understand that probably by May of next year, we will have finally purged all of our documents of of all social restrictions and leave it up to the individual and God. In other words, we still have in our uh, license applications for pastors and missionaries, I will not use alcohol at any time in any form, and I will not use tobacco. (laughs) And it also says I will not use illegal drugs, but... That's kind of stupid, because you're not know, supposed to use illegal drugs anyway. But anyway, um, <clears throat> it's all there. And they're going to probably be get rid of that by May, and that'll be a good thing. But before then, many years ago when I came in, there was things in there about dancing and attending the movies. And, uh, you know, I grew up a Baptist, and we didn't dance anyway, so... Like Herb says, I can't dance today because he he was Baptist-inflicted by (laughs) no dancing as a kid. But anyway, um, the the idea was, what happens in movie theaters? They show racy films. They show films that will kind of arouse your sexual prurient interest. Um, You could see things in films. Oh, my goodness. So how do, we, how do we solve this moral dilemma? How do we not support an industry that makes these godless movies? Well, you don't go to the movie theater. Just don't go to the theater. That solves the problem. And then it was, well, you shouldn't see anything that's rated more than PG-13. And then it was, well, you, you shouldn't go to an R-rated movie. Those are all fences that people draw in order to avoid inadvertently seeing, in this case, something that would be inappropriate. Now, if you're renting X-rated porn flicks, we need to have a conversation. Clearly, clearly, you're outside of the biblical realm. You're, you're, you, you've crossed the line. No question. I, I've had couples in marriage counseling ask me with a straight face, Can we watch X-rated porn flicks to enhance our intimate lives? Oh, man. No. Come on. But anyway, okay, that's a rule. (laughs) That's Paul Martin's rule. Take it or leave it. But when we start drawing fences, to get further and further away. And now I'm saying, okay, I cannot attend the theater. And if you attend the theater, you're not spiritual. Where is that? That's a kind of legalism that makes the fence the rule instead of addressing the problem. And I can't make that rule for you. You know, it may be a good rule for me. Maybe that's where I need to stand. Maybe a person has a problem with alcohol and they know that if they get around it, they're going to drink. And they know if they start drinking, they're going to have too many. And they can't stop and they don't know what to do about it. And so they, between themselves and God, make, make the rule. I'm not going to go where alcohol is served and I'm not going to hang out with people that drink. That's, that's going to be my rule. That's fine. That may be a good thing if you're struggling. But it's not a rule that you can export for the rest of the church. It's something between you and God. And we cannot judge each other over those issues. Uh, When we start (laughs) kind of drawing fences to keep us further away from the edge of the cliff, usually what's underlying that is fear that is motivated by the concern that I'll get too close and fall off. But God is able to make me stand. You need to get before God and find out where you need to draw the line. And then you need to keep that between you and God because it's a personal matter. I hope this helps you. I hope that it provides some guidelines to help you sort out and discern where you need to be on different issues. I hope you can find now the difference between what is truly biblically mandated, encouraged, moral, spiritual discipline, and what is merely the opinions of people. And that we will learn as a church body not to judge one another and not to demand that others follow our particular sensitivities, but that we don't give condemnation and criticism to each other in these matters. Father, open our eyes to see and understand the truth. Help us to be a people that walk by faith and that put our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ to enable us to walk in holiness and godliness of the truth that we might be pleasing to you in every respect. Lord, the real issue is how much in love with you are we? Do we love you above all else? Have we given your Holy Spirit permission to direct our lives in every dimension that we might be pleasing to you in every respect? May we be that kind of people for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.